the rest of us, let's take out our Bibles and find Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, as we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew uh, generally, and then what we call here the, uh, the Olivet Discourse, particularly chapters 24 and 25. And we began this two weeks ago with just an intro kind of message into these two chapters. And then last week we looked at the first uh, 14 verses of this passage. And this week, we're ready to move on to the next uh, paragraph, beginning in verse 15 through 28, is primarily what our text is going to be. And so we are going to spend three weeks, I think, total in Matthew 24, and uh, so we'll probably finish it up next week. But I wanted to spend a little extra time in this just for myself, because as I've mentioned, this is a text that has been disputed over the centuries, and um, various interpretations, and I kind of want to just spend some time for myself even, uh, uh, refamiliarizing myself with this passage and uh, drawing some conclusions in it. So I've enjoyed doing that, and uh, these messages are the fruit of that. Well, I can say I've mainly enjoyed it. There have been times I have been pulling my hair out in exasperation, but there are other times I have actually enjoyed it. Enjoyed it and uh, so we'll look through this this morning. Let's go ahead and read verses, uh, let's just read verses 1 through 28. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places, all these are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, become, and, law, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But... The one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, 
Do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Let's just pause now and pray and ask God's blessing on this text. Father, let our cry come before you, O Lord. Give us understanding according to your word. Let our plea come before you and deliver us according to your word. We come before these verses in Matthew chapter 24, God, that you breathed out through your servant Matthew. You have preserved them all these centuries. And while your people have read them and studied them and heard messages on them, they've been encouraged and edified. And I pray that for this morning as we look specifically in verses 15 to 28. We need eyes to see and hearts to understand and ears to hear the main points of this passage. So please help us do that. And in keeping with that, I pray for a 1 Corinthians 14 ability to speak forth your word in a way that builds up the congregation. So I ask for that now. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now, remember the context. Okay? It's very important as we begin to dive in here that we understand what's happening in the context. First of all, we understand that Jesus is in Jerusalem and he's come there for the last time. This is the Passion Week and he's going to the cross. It's all in that last time, a week, a period before, uh, well, as we observe Good Friday when Christ would go to the cross. He's delivering what's called this Olivet Discourse where it gets its name from verse 3 because he's there on the Mount of Olives And specifically, it's just a few of his disciples that have come to him and asked these questions, and then he's giving them this teaching, much of which has to do, uh, if not all of which, the future for them and a lot of the future for us. But it's important to understand that what he's doing here is correcting their wrong kingdom uh, understandings. He's correcting their faulty kingdom expectations. They believed that the Christ was coming. That's true. And they were waiting for him. They've identified Jesus to be the Christ. But they assumed that he was going to establish the kingdom immediately. So to understand this passage, you have to understand that they had no concept at all of an inter-advent age. Okay, the first advent of Christ, and then there's a second advent coming, right? They had no concept of a, of a span of time that now has hit about 2,000 years. That would have blown their mind. So when they're asking him these questions about the destruction of the temple, verses 1 and 2, when will, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age, they're thinking this is all going to happen at once. 
It's like, okay, great, you're going to destroy the temple. And then what are you going to do to present yourself now as the son of man in power and glory and establish the kingdom? And so largely what Jesus is doing here and what he has to do is correct that faulty understanding of the first advent of Christ and prepare them for a long delay, for an indefinite period of time between that first arrival and the last. He's got he's to help them grasp this truth. You know, when they were going into Jerusalem, Luke records this parable in Luke 19 about uh, the minus, uh, M-I-N-A-S and, and such. But G, uh, Luke records this in, in verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 11. I have a slide. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. That's the context. We're in Jerusalem now. Let's make this happen. What are you going to do to bring this in? So he is correcting that faulty understanding of the first advent, and he's helping them grasp this inter-advent age, and he's characterizing it generally. That's what we looked at in verses 3 through 14 last week. It would be characterized really with one word. We could, we could summarize it in one word, and it's the word tribulation. If you were to summarize what the world will be like in the inner Advent age, it would be with the word tribulation. That word means trouble or affliction or distress. And it really speaks of the, the distress and the trouble and the affliction you experience because of what's happening around you. And as he described to us last week, this whole inter-Advent age would be characterized by things that cause tribulation, right? Like false prophets, false teaching, persecution, wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, all of these things that Jesus said must take place, all summarized with the word tribulation. Now, if you had an expectation... Let's say Jesus returns again and he comes in in power and great glory to establish his kingdom and you're thinking all of that's over now. All of our suffering's done and all of a sudden he says, okay, now let me prepare you for a lengthy period of time before this all comes to pass again. Can you imagine your shock? That would be them, right? This is why they had trouble with the fact that he said he was going to die. This is why they had fact with everything that was happening. They had trouble with, why are you not doing anything about this? Because he had to prepare them for that. And friends, in John 16, in this world you will have tribulation. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. And I'm emphasizing this because some of us have come up in circles of end times thoughts where the only, the only re- reason you would use that word tribulation or think about it at all, is you're thinking about this future period of time, seven years, right? In the future, there's going to be great tribulation. I, knew I, I know I grew up thinking, okay, the tribulation, oh yeah, I know all about that, that's it. That's at the end of time, and there's seven years, and it's Daniel's 70th week, and all those things, and that's all we think about with tribulation. That's not the way the Bible uses the word. This entire inter-advent age, Jesus describes as one of tribulation helping his disciples understand this very clearly 
that it would not be in, in some respects a very comfortable period of time for disciples of Christ. It is interesting to me that we as Christians are often, I say we because me and myself, uh, we often think about, uh, uh, we're, we're taken back when bad things happen. There's a surprise there when things don't pan out. As we watch even now the events of our world and in our country, and it seems going in a very terrible direction, and we're like, well, this is very surprising to me, when actually it shouldn't be surprising at all. It's very faith-building, right? Because it's exactly what Jesus said would happen. Things are panning out exactly as this great promised prophet Jesus predicted and prophesied that they would. Really, by all rights, I think Christians should be, ideally, the calmest and coolest and most collected of people in our entire nation. They should really be turning to Christians, asking things like, tell me, what is this hope that you have? Why are you so steady and sturdy amidst all this type of trouble around you? To which we would reply, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you about my hope. These are things that must happen, Jesus says. This is part and parcel of the age in which we live, and it will go all the way until he returns. It isn't, verse 29, until all of the God-ordained tribulation has taken place, that then Christ will return in power and glory. These things must happen. But remember in verse 14, this very wonderful, triumphal promise that the gospel through it all, through all the tribulation of this world, will keep pressing on. It will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. It keeps going forward and forward to this very day People are being saved from their sins through the proclamation of the gospel in the farthest points of the world and tribes and places in which it was never there. Now people are coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ just as Jesus said would happen. They can't stop the gospel. Now, I want to take a rabbit trail and I want you to follow me down it. So I don't want to leave you here and then me go down the rabbit trail. I'll have you come with me. So I want you to turn to Romans chapter 5. I want to show you something. Romans chapter 5 ties right in, I think, to our study in Matthew chapter 24, which is largely what the letters do, by the way. They shine, uh, the letters of Paul and Peter and others, they shine light on some of Jesus' teaching and elaborate for you and give you application, actually, on some of the things that he said. So look at chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just pause right there and say, if you don't know what he means by that, being justified by faith... The book of the month this month for November is R.C. Sproul's book, Faith Alone. And I think it's a classic book on explaining what we mean by faith alone and why we're not Catholics. Because you're either saved by faith alone, as evangelical Protestants have been proclaiming now for 500 years, or you're saved by faith and works. It's not both and. 
That's not one of the doctrines, by the way, that we can just go, oh, that's okay, you believe that, and I'll believe this. No, you're either saved by faith alone, right, or you're not. So check that book out, and that'll shine more light on chapter 5, verse 1. But anyway, verse 2, through him, Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. All right, let me press pause there again. That word hope is a future-oriented word. You're hoping for something that hasn't happened yet, right? But in biblical language, hope is not wishful thinking, like I really hope this happens, but hope is confident expectation. It's waiting. And he says we rejoice or we boast in the hope of the glory of God. That's a very important phrase because... What we know is going to happen from Matthew 24 is that Christ returns in power and glory. And what happens at that point, friends, is that we are glorified just as Paul taught about in 1 Corinthians 15, like in the twinkling of an eye at that last trumpet, when he shows up, he glorifies us. So we have new glorified bodies just as we Read about imperishable, undying, incorruptible bodies. So that is definitely something we rejoice in, right? So as we're studying Matthew 24, we don't want to get lost in too many of the details. The details are important. We want to keep going back to the main point that Christ returns in glory and we're glorified with him and we rejoice in that fact, okay? But catch this. Verse 3, not only that, not only do we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Now that word in my English Standard Bible is translated as sufferings, but know this, it's the Greek word by which you, uh, we, we learned in Matthew 24 is tribulation. Same Greek word. This trouble, this distress of our lives and of our world. We rejoice in that as well. Does that sound funny to you? I mean, people like to rejoice in something they really think is awesome and they're hoping, but then when distress comes, trouble comes, tribulation comes, as Jesus said would, do we have that same level of boasting in that? If not, maybe we don't understand what God's doing in it, and that's what Paul tries to explain here. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In other words, we rejoice in the tribulation. We're not a pessimistic people. Uh, We're also not a sadistic people, so we're not rejoicing in the pain itself or the suffering or the distress, but we rejoice in and through it because we know that God has good gospel purposes for our lives in it. He's changing us. He's transforming us even now into the glorious image of Christ using, guys, the suffering and tribulation of your life. God doesn't dole out, so to speak, suffering in your life arbitrarily. It all has purpose. Purpose for His glorification and for your own that you become more and more like Christ in your inner being. And He produces this character and love and hope and many other things within you through the tribulation. So you rejoice because that's what we know, right? 
It's not a wasted suffering. Its gospel purpose is designed by God to produce gospel progress in your heart and life. So not only are we not surprised when tribulation enters into our life, there is a sense in which we rejoice because we know this comes into our life and is allowed in our life coming from a loving God who wants us to experience the joy of growing into Christ-likeness. He's using it for gospel purposes, okay? All right, back in Matthew. That was our rabbit trail. We'll veer back onto the main path now, back in Matthew chapter 24. Verses 15 through 28. Let me give you my heading for those, my, what I think is just the main point. Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 through 28, is Jesus' warning to his disciples to flee Jerusalem when its destruction arrives. Jesus' instructions to his disciples to get out of Jerusalem when its destruction arrives. Now you remember... The destruction of Jerusalem generally and the temple specifically was a direct result of God's wrath against the Jewish people for their continual rejection of him. So way way back, remember in chapter 21, chapter 22, we went through those judgment parables against the nation of Israel and against that people and that place. And Jesus was telling them how he would give it, do it through parables, but saying, you have consistently and historically rejected God, his law, the covenant, and all the prophets he sent to you. He'd send you prophets. And not only would you not listen to their warnings, you would take them and kill them. And then when he sent in John the Baptist... Jesus said the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. He sends him in, the forerunner of Christ. And what do you do with him? You kill him and refuse to listen to him. And now here I am, essentially, says Jesus, the prophet Moses prophesied about, warning you of the impending danger and how will you treat me? Well, we all know how that happens. They reject him. And it's because of that repeated Rejection of God and his prophets. Destruction was coming upon that city and that temple. There was a desolation coming. And what Jesus is doing largely in these verses, in 15, verses 15 especially to 22, is he's warning his people that listen to him that when that time arrives, if you're there, get out of there. Because the destruction was going to be complete and total and swift. And if you stay in it, there will be no sparing you, you see. So flee. The destruction was coming. Remember back in chapter 23, in verses 37 to 39, you have this well-known account of Jesus lamenting over Jerusalem. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Listen to this. See, your house is left to you desolate. Now look at chapter 24 and look at verse 15. So when you see the abomination that's going to bring this desolation, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, 
Then, verse 16, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. See the connection? Jesus is prophesying, weeping over them because of your rejection historically and now. Destruction and desolation are headed your way. And he's warning his disciples that when they see this happen, when they see chapter 24, verses 1 and 2, the destruction coming upon that temple, when they see all this taking place, they are to get out of there to flee the wrath of God. The wrath of God was coming and they were to flee. Can I just zoom out and give a general application to all of us on that? You know, the Bible is crystal clear that there is a desolation and destruction of God's righteous judgment coming on this whole world. And it's going to come in like a flood. And there is only one way to flee that wrath to come, and that is by repenting of your sin and putting your faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. It's only by doing that that you flee the wrath to come. So don't miss the main point of these verses. Destruction's coming. Flee it. Repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So largely this whole passage is just a a very general, very practical, very pastoral warning from Jesus that when they see the destruction coming, they were to flee so as not to get caught up in the wrath that was about to be poured out on them. But I want to hone in for a moment on verse 15. And he says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, and I want to park on that phrase for a moment. He says, let the reader understand, so whether that was Jesus saying that or Matthew inserting it, I think it was Matthew inserting it, it's obviously cueing the reader in on looking back a little bit at Daniel's prophecy of abomination of desolation. Make sure you get a full picture of what he's prophesying about here, right? So I've put those up on the screen. Actually, the first one, there's three times in Daniel's prophecies that he makes mention of this. The first one is Daniel 9, verses 26 to 27. He says, And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. That's Jesus, and the nothing he receives is the kingdom at that point, is what I think. And the people of the prince who is to come, that is up for debate, but we'll talk about that in a moment. The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The city being Jerusalem, the sanctuary being, of course, the temple located at that time in Jerusalem. Its end shall come with a flood, that is, sudden destruction. And to the end, there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week and For half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice, key phrase, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, because that happens at the temple, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Then again in Daniel chapter 11, verses 29 to 31, at that time... Oh, at the time appointed, he shall return, here's this leader again, come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. Four ships of Katim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress 
and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. And then one more time, at the, towards the end of his book, Daniel chapter 12, verse 11, and from the time that the regular burnt offering from the temple is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. So it would take weeks for us to unpack everything in Daniel's prophecies that we've read here, but let me just summarize some key points as it relates to the abomination desolation. Daniel's prophesying about a time when a pagan leader will come to Jerusalem committing abomination and being the abomination himself that causes this desolation. He will cut off worship and sacrifice at the temple. In Daniel chapter 9, he says this desolation of the temple in the city of Jerusalem would come like a flood. How do floods come? Suddenly and violently, bringing devastation, leaving devastation in their wake. And the temple would be a place then that no longer had the sacrifices and, uh, and so all of these things would come acro- uh, apart on that place in those people in that time. So the answer is, how is this fulfilled? Well, you might be surprised to know this, but the Jews of Jesus' day, at least most of them, believe this already was. The abomination that brings desolation happened in B.C. 167, of course, they would say. Under that Seleucid king, Antiochus IV, called himself Epiphanes because he, called him, he, he said, God manifest was the name he gave to himself. Believed he was a deity. He actually comes into Jerusalem, he and his armies, and they slaughter tens of thousands of Jews. It was a massacre. It was a tribulation of massive proportions in those days. Now keep in mind, this is 170 years before Jesus. Not only that, but he came into the temple. He cut off sacrifices of the Jews. He refused to let them keep their covenant uh, of circumcision, the sign of circumcision anymore. He required them to start offering swine on the altar. What an abomination, wouldn't you say? Ceased ceased all worship and set up uh, an idol of the god Zeus and required everybody to worship him. Actually, you can read about that account in the book of First Maccabees. It's one of those hidden books, as they're recall, uh, called, in the, in the intervening 400 years between Malachi and the New Testament. It's well documented. And there was an insurrection at the time against him, led by the man Judas Maccabees, and it was successful. And they restored worship at the temple and things, and the Jews celebrate that particular event to this day. But many of them would have thought, that incomplete, in full. Daniel's prophecy had already been fulfilled. This wasn't something in the future for them anymore, especially anything in the future for us. So when they heard him say that the abomination of desolation from Daniel's prophecies still yet had fulfillment to happen, there may have been surprise. We don't get that in the text, but I'm assuming there might have been some surprise by this. So what is Jesus talking about here then? The abomination of desolation. And there are two main interpretations of this. And interpreters want you to jump in one or the other. And if you won't jump in one or the other, they're going to get all flustered at you. The first interpretation, of course, is that this was all fulfilled in AD 70. 
That is, every part of this was fulfilled in AD 70 under Titus, that Roman ruler who went in there, and yes, they slaughtered, again, tens of thousands of Jews. They destroyed the temple and the sanctuary. They cut off completely all worship, and that's been going on to this very day, right? Many people say that's when it was fulfilled, so we're looking back at it now, and we can see how it was fulfilled in that time. That was Daniel's abomination of desolation finally fulfilled. The second camp of people say, nope, and really they'll interpret all of chapter 24 like this. They say this is all in the future. This is all in the seven-year tribulation period, the great Antichrist figure that's going to come, the covenant he's going to make with Jews, covet off midweek, uh, midway through the uh, uh, seven-year tribulation period. He's going to be the, bring abomination that causes desolation, no more worship in this temple that would need to be rebuilt by that time in that future seven-year time period. So inquiring minds probably want to know where I stand on that. My humble conclusion is this, that I'm not convinced that we need to or should choose between one of these two options. First, there seems to me to be a directly applicable uh, fulfillment of the abomination desolation in B.C. 167 that had already happened. Some of those things seem very clear to me in Daniel's prophecy, especially the one in chapter 11. This Antiochus IV clearly came in there, created abomination and cut off the worship, right? Second, I don't want to put blinders on to eighty seventy, because in the media context and Jesus warning them, I mean, this really seems to me like a fulfillment of the prophecy. As a matter of fact, if I were in Jerusalem and all of a sudden I saw the Romans coming in around 67, 68 AD and start surrounding the city and I was familiar with Jesus' teaching about the abomination that's bringing desolation and to flee Judea when that happens, what do you think I'd do? I'd get out of there. You know, Eusebius is a uh, fourth-century church historian, so a long time ago, but he records about many uh, Christians that were in Jerusalem when the Romans invaded, who when they saw them start to invade, in response and obedience to Jesus' words, got out of Jerusalem and fled. And as they're fleeing, I'm sure they're thinking, the abomination that causes desolation has arrived. So I don't want to put blinders on to AD 70. There could be a partial fulfillment in that. But I also think that it's entirely possible, if not probable, that other scriptures point to the fact that the tribulation at the end will have some things that replicate this to a greater degree even. Perhaps when I study about Daniel's 70 weeks, if you've never done that, it's a fascinating study, that the 70th week hasn't been fulfilled in completion yet. That very likely what we have is a time period yet to come, a mysterious ruler who will arrive just before the end, a tribulation unsurpassed to that point even, and in God's specific dealing with the Jews before he restores them in the end, which I believe he will do. I have no problem with landing on all three of these areas and saying, yes, I see a partial fulfillment here and partial fulfillment here, and maybe towards the end it could be even greater. You know what? One verse that really strikes me is verse 8, where Jesus says this, all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Now think about that metaphor of a woman going into labor 
in the beginning. In most cases, now I know people come up to me afterward and say, no, it wasn't the case for me, and this happened, we, we had our baby within, you know, five minutes of my water breaking or whatever. But most cases, you feel the rumblings of the birth pains, and they hurt, so I'm not diminishing that they hurt. But as you get closer to the, to the actual delivery, what usually happens is those pains are closer together, aren't they? And they become more intense and more painful, and it keeps happening that way all the way up until the actual delivery. It could be that Jesus is saying, look, here's the general characterization of this age. There's tribulation. These things will happen in Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. And yet, as we get closer to the end, the intensity, as we get closer to the arrival of Christ, which in this case, in the metaphor, keeping the metaphor would be the birth, pain gets more intense, tribulation becomes more intense, so that at the end, we have this tribulation period that Jesus said, look at this in verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. In other words, this intense great tribulation that is in the final fulfillment of all of this in also what strikes me in this is verse 29. It's immediately after the tribulation of those days that the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. You see, it's after the tribulation of a specific set of time period, those days, if you keep to this interpretation, and I'm just telling you there are others that say different things, so you feel free to look into them. But it seems to me the most natural reading would be there's an intensive tribulation at the end, a mysterious ruler, man of lawlessness, Antichrist who comes up, some dealings with the Jews, and then Christ returns. Let's do this. One more. Let me show you something. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And this is where I'm, I'm, I've got a number of things in my notes, and this is the point where I have to start determining what we will look at and what we won't. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you're using one of our Bibles here at the church, that's page 1259. Page 1259. Because I'll hear this rustling going on through the whole time I'm reading this, and it's easier to just give you the page number. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, listen to this. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. So clearly we know what he's talking about here. We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming him himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And do you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Remember, Jesus said there would be lawlessness and an increase of it. 
Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. In other words, this lawlessness one who will appear will be destroyed directly by Jesus at his coming, which tells me that didn't happen in A.D. 70. There's more to happen, more to come. Yes, this whole age is characterized by lawlessness that will increase, but there is a man of lawlessness yet to come. This mysterious figure that Daniel talks about and John talks about and Paul talks about. As a matter of fact, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, I have that on the slide there. It says, children, it is the last hour. And that was 2,000 years ago, by the way. It is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. And that's exactly what Jesus said. There'd be false Christs. Those that are opposed to him and his church and false prophets. It's been happening. And he says, yet there is still one to come. This man who will embody the Antichrist uh, mentality and beliefs and actually exalt himself as God. And perhaps even set himself up in a future temple that under God's direction and provision would be reestablished in Jerusalem. We'll have to wait and see. But it, what I'm, my main point is this. I don't think we need to land in Matthew 24 on the fact that it's already happened or that it will happen in the future. I think we can say both and. Both and. That's how many prophecies happen. They happen in, fulfillment, uh, in increments. Different time periods. Can't we learn anything from the first apostles who thought the coming of the Messiah would be in one event? One stage, one event, one thing? I would think we as Christians would want to learn from that and say, wait a minute, there's probably things God hasn't revealed yet and that oftentimes prophecies like that could maybe have minor fulfillments that are pointing to more fuller fulfillments or partial fulfillments that are still waiting more fulfillments. Which leads me to say this. Let's just draw a few conclusions here in closing. Number one, prophecy is not always as neat and clean as we would like it to be. Don't laminate your end times charts because you might want to make some corrections. Okay? Don't laminate them. Number two, and way more importantly, rejection of Jesus always leads to destruction. Learn the lesson from the Jews. God has sent Jesus into this world not to condemn it, but to save it. For those who will turn from their sins and place their faith in him, you can be saved, but you reject Jesus, destruction will come upon you. Not just physical destruction in this world or in this life, not even just physical death itself, but an eternal destruction and desolation and alienation from God. Repent and place your faith in Jesus Christ. Young people, I'm pleading with you to hear me. The devil promises sin, in sin, to be such pleasure, to to lure you away from Jesus. Don't believe it. It's a lie. It always leads into destruction, even if if it's temporarily very enjoyable. Even if the destruction is delayed for years or decades, destruction will come. Repent and trust in Jesus. 
Number three, Christians in Jerusalem were to flee and not fight. There may be among them the idea, like among the zealots, Jesus even called one of them to be their own, his own disciple. The zealots thought that they should lead another insurrection. So maybe they thought that they could be like Judas Maccabees back in 167. And when they see the, the Romans coming in, they could stand there and stand their ground and fight and God will give them victory. He's saying, no, I'm done with that place for now. There'll be no more temple, no more destruction. Friends, we need to take note of that because Jesus said in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. And number four, the only way to avoid the wrath of God coming on the whole world is to trust in Jesus because Jesus himself bore the wrath for his people. Romans chapter three, verses 23 to 25, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That word propitiation is so important. It means an appeasement of God's wrath. The imagery here, I think, is striking. God took his son and put him forward in front of you. And on that cross, he bore that destruction, that wrath, that desolation, to the point where he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As Paul said, he becomes the curse for us, absorbing that wrath in his person so that, friends, you can be justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. That's the good news of the gospel. Whenever bad things are happening in your life. It isn't a result of God's wrath against you. Now we know it has gospel purpose and meaning. It's a result of his love. And creating in you now the longing to see him return again so that we can be like him and with him forever. We'll look more specifically next week at the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, first of all, we just want to thank you for putting Jesus forward on the cross to appease all that wrath directed at us so we can know your grace and love in our lives and eternal blessings with you forever. God, if there's someone here who isn't looking to Jesus in a saving way, please save him or her. We know that it must be your spirit that brings a conviction of sin so they're convinced they need a savior. And we pray that would happen. And that you would give them ability to see Jesus crucified for them, risen for them. And you'd bring them into your kingdom. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.